The Eagle and Child, Episode 7. Mere Christianity, Book 1, Chapter 5. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name's David, and today we come to chapter five, which is the final chapter in the first book of Mere Christianity, and it's ominously titled, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. And I'm joined once again by my fellow King of Narnia, Matt. I was wondering how long it was going to take you to introduce me by my formal title. (laughs) Well, Matt, once a king or queen of Narnia, always a king or queen of Narnia. I know, you should have noticed that four episodes ago. It's funny, actually. My mother sent me a message the other day. She noted that a lot of people on Facebook had given me an honorary knighthood. She said, but they're calling you Sir Bates. Technically, they should be calling you Sir David. (laughs) I hope you don't expect me to call you Sir David Bates going forward. I'll, I'll get over it. All right, good. But based on the title of this chapter, I think this should be a pretty fun conversation. And I don't know about the listeners, but I'm feeling a little uneasy about it. As you all should be. <laughs> Spoken by Sir David Bates. <laughs> so this week we're still working through the remaining beers in my fridge. And just to mix things up a little bit, this time I'm drinking the Blue Moon and Matt is working on a Heineken. Cheers. Cheers. So, Jack begins once again by reviewing what we've established thus far. He says that there's a moral law, and he says that in this moral law, somebody or something from beyond the material universe is getting at us. Ooh, I wonder what it is. Well, he rather amusingly considers how some readers may have reacted to the previous chapter. Here's what he says. I expect that when I reached that point, some of you felt a certain annoyance. You may have even thought that I had played a trick on you that I'd been carefully wrapping up to look like philosophy, or turns out to be just one more religious chore, religious chatter. So once again, we're treated to a little bit of Jack's sense of humour. But when I first read it, it reminded me of an episode in the Bible, in Acts of the Apostles, where St. Paul goes to the Areopagus. Here's what it says. This is Acts 17, verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. It's newness that is sometimes prized in the world. There's this idea that if an idea is new, then, well, that's worth listening to. And Jack says that some people might think, religion? Well, humanity's already tried religion, and we cannot turn the clock back. Well, if that's you listening to this podcast now, C.S. Lewis has a few things to say to you. He's got three points. The first point Jack makes is you sometimes have to go backward in order to go forward. Basically, life is a cha-cha. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to pretend like I know what that means. <laughs> well, you go forward, back, forward, back. Okay, uh, okay, okay. I'll take your word for it. So he points out progress means getting nearer to a place where you want to be. So if you think about it, if you've gone in a wrong direction, you need to go backwards in order to get on the right path. And I experienced this in the most literal of ways. When I was walking across Spain in the Camino de Santiago, I would often get up very early in the morning while it was still dark. Now, the danger of doing that is that occasionally you might miss a sign. And in this case, I did. I missed this yellow arrow pointing me to leave the road and start crossing these woods. 
And so I was walking on that road for a good 40 minutes before I realized I'm in the wrong place. And I really had no choice. If I wanted to get back on the path, if I wanted to get back on the pilgrimage, I had to turn around and now walk 40 minutes in the opposite direction and mostly uphill. Oof. Well, better late than never. I made it back. <laughs> on top of David's brilliantly stupid example. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> on top of David's brilliant stupidity, Lewis uses another example from mathematics. He points out that if you make a calculation, it makes absolutely no sense to stubbornly carry on. Go back to high school calculus. Think of those complex things where they build on each other. If you make an error in the beginning, you're done. Or just long multiplication or long division. Yeah. If one of your rows is wrong and you keep, keep going, your answer is definitely going to be wrong. What I like about that analogy that he doesn't actually point out it magnifies in some oh, yeah. senses. It can become exponential. And so it's very important to catch that as early as you can. It's like the various issues they've had with NASA when some set of calculations have been sent over and when they've been received, they've, been, they've assumed the units that are involved and they've actually been incorrect. So they've been orders of magnitude off. You know, another example, actually, I just thought of. Think of a plane going from New York to LA. If in the first 10 minutes of flight, it changes course, it can end up in Seattle. Mm -hmm. The earliest mess up in the beginning can cause a huge drastic difference between LA and Seattle. It's the difference between perpetual downpour and sunshine. <laughs> exactly. There you go. I like that. If anyone's listening in Seattle, I love you all, but you have a very rainy city. <laughs> I'm just saying. I probably should use San Diego around LA because they'd say you have crappy <laughs> well, traffic. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. So flip that for San Diego. What I believe personally is important about this especially today with relative truth, this emphasis on relative truth. It's tempting to get attracted to the latest theory or the latest worldview because they seem progressive. We all want to be up to date with the latest idea. Yeah, progressive doesn't necessarily mean just new. No. Your progression is to move forward. Yeah. You can have a new idea and it can be regressive. It can take you back. Yeah. And he's, he's going to actually talk about this in the end of book four when he says, when people don't study theology, they don't learn, they will have ideas about God, but very often they're bad ideas about God that were rejected by theologians a long time ago. I love that point. When I first heard that, so much of what we think is this new idea has all been tested before. Oh, yeah. And was considered a heresy. Mm -hmm. And what we need to look for is that capital T truth. Personally, being Catholic, I do believe in Christian that we know quite a bit about it. Mm-hmm. Some from the lateral light of reason, some from divine revelation. That's exactly right. Do you think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that humanity has made some big mistakes? He does say that, but he doesn't even try and justify it. I'm trying to think about that for a second. Well, I mean, I think it's uncontroversial that we've advanced in many ways, particularly technologically. But also the era in which Lewis was giving these talks, you've just had the worst world war ever and you're just starting the next one. Well, that's why I was hesitating. I'm thinking from my time. The short answer is yes, we're making big mistakes. I think at all time periods, different civilizations are making big mistakes. My hesitation was, is it any bigger than it's been in the past? I think we've enabled ourselves to have a bigger impact with these, with these mistakes. In high school, I studied the First World War, and the death toll was primarily through the technological advance. You now have this machine gun that you could stick on top of a trench and just mow down people who are coming towards you. Mm -hmm. You were still fighting this fairly needless war, but you were now so much more efficient at killing people. 
but at other times when I'm feeling a little bit more despondent about the world, when you hear people like Peter Singer saying that it's more moral to kill a toddler than it is to kill a grown pig, I don't, I don't think the, sometimes I just don't think humanity is actually getting any better. Yeah. You know, the thing that I think of is a story by Father Mike Schmitz, where he talks about this gentleman who lived in China, and, and, and this was recent, a providence in China that is still uh, anti-Catholic, it's illegal. So he's a part of this underground church. He believes deeply in the Eucharist. He gets caught, and they torture him for four weeks to get him to give up where is this underground church. And he absolutely will not give it up, because he believes so much in the sanctity of the Eucharist. After they realize this guy's not going to break, they release him, and he decides, I have to get out of here with my family. We need, And so he comes to the United States. And what's interesting about it is when he was in the United States, he started going to daily mass. He's like, this is incredible, freedom of religion. Then he starts realizing something else. I have an amazing opportunity to help advance my family with you know, the American dream. And so he starts working hard for his family for great reasons. And he can't go to daily mass, but that's okay. And so he's going as much as he can, and then it's weekly. Unfortunately, it doesn't become weekly anymore. It becomes monthly, and it becomes only the holidays. And then Father Mike Schmidt said, this is a true parishioner in his parish, or was. He didn't come once in that entire year. And he said, people look at the persecution as the negative. That's where his faith was flourishing. It was the second he came to the United States. Well, not the second, but when he came to the United States, this culture of consumerism, materialism, ambition, American dream, that's what got him to renounce God. Wow. Not trying to bash the American dream, but maybe that is an answer that even though we think World War II and World War I, when he's talking, is way worse. Even Lewis says, someone who dies on the battlefield is probably closer to heaven because they're dying for something beyond themselves. Mm-hmm. In today's society... We are completely for ourselves. And the other example I was thinking of was that of the sexual revolution. And you see the fallout that that gave. In the space of just a few generations, marriage is destroyed. Most kids being raised without both of their parents together. So true. Wow, that was depressing. Let's let's bring in this back. (laughs) (laughs) So the first point was that sometimes we have to go backwards in order to go forwards. But the second point is, we haven't actually reached God yet. Lewis says that he hasn't actually got as far as God or any actual religion. He's only got as far as saying that there is this somebody or something that's behind the moral law. And here we just have to encourage one another to remain intellectually honest, to consider the veracity of each point in Lewis's argument, and not just preemptively torpedoing it because we know the direction and we can see the direction in which it's heading. So Lewis now asks two questions. What can we know about this something or someone behind the moral law based on from what we can see in the universe? And what can we know about this something or someone from the moral law itself? So he says that when you look at the universe, you can tell that this something or someone behind it has to be an artist. Because he says the universe is immensely beautiful. We live in San Diego, so that one's a (laughs) no-brainer. But then he says something which I think might surprise a lot of people. Because he says that this something or someone is also quite merciless, and not even really a friend to man. 
because the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. If you've ever gone out camping into the middle of nowhere and heard very strange animal noises in the night, you realize that there's a lot of the world that is very hostile to us. Yeah, I was, uh, like to trail run. I saw my first rattlesnake the other day. You know what I really want to ask, you know, when people say, you know, why did God create rattlesnakes? No, why did he create mosquitoes? <laughs> or wasps? Utterly useless creatures. Yeah, I still, I'm still with the snakes one. I hate them. So anyway, that's what he says we can tell from looking at the universe. But what can we know about this something or someone by looking at the moral law? And he says, well, we can tell that this something cares an awful lot about right and wrong. And again, he couples this by saying something that's a little shocking, because he says we can't yet really call this something or someone forgiving. Let me quote him. He says, The moral law does not give us any grounds for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. There is nothing indulgent about the moral law. It is as hard as nails. If there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. Ooh, I do have cause to be uneasy. Mm-hmm. And that, that, it's kind of shocking, but at the end of this chapter, he's going to explain why this is an important point to understand. And he goes on to say that we actually haven't even yet arrived at a personal God. It's only this power, a, more of a mind than anything else. And Jack explains that we actually haven't even got as far as a person. At the moment, this something is more of a power. Maybe a mind? It's more of a mind, maybe, than a real person. And he says that if it's an impersonal mind, then there's no sense in asking it to make allowances. No, no sense in asking it to let you off. Because that would be like asking the multiplication table to let you off when you get your sums wrong. And it will never do that. No. And as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking of the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not a tame lion. Mm, yeah. And in mere Christianity, he says, God is the only comfort but he is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. Everything you just pointed out in point two, the things that we can learn from the universe, the things that we can learn from the moral law, they're particularly important for point three. Lewis's point is Christianity wouldn't make sense without understanding this context because he points out Christianity tells people to repent and it promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. Yeah. When you know you are sick, you listen to the doctor. That's when, exactly right. When you don't think you're sick, you don't go to the doctor. Exactly. And so therefore, if you haven't heard the bad news of the moral law, how are you going to understand the good news of Jesus? Amen. So as book one draws to a close, I'd like to end by reading the few final sentences of chapter five, because Jack explains what he's been trying to do. He says, all I am trying to do is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. And they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable. He's British, we like saying agreeable things. But I must say what I think true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is in the long run a thing of unspeakable comfort. I think you and I would agree with that. Oh, definitely. But it does not begin in comfort. Which Lewis is going to talk about in a later chapter. Is it easy or hard? 
Oh yes, yeah. In in book four, uh-huh. he 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 addresses this question. Yep. But particularly the beginning of the Christian life, he says it doesn't begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I've been describing, and it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. And then he offers a little bit of proverbial wisdom, which I find really resonates within me. He says, in religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you'll not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and, in the end, despair. Wow. And you can tell he's a man of his times, having lived through World War I and now into World War II. He says... Most of us have got over the pre-war wishful thinking about international politics. It is time we did the same about religion. That's quite a way to end the book. Yeah. Well, I think the Christianity that Lewis describes is something, how did you describe it in the preface? Pungent. Yeah. It's something powerful. Lewis says elsewhere that he undertook this challenge to explain Christianity to the British people because he didn't feel that they'd ever actually really had it explained how many people still hang on to very childish notions of Christianity and how many people reject Christianity because what they're rejecting is a straw man. It's not really Christianity. That last point is an important one, at least in my journey. It was only when I started digging into the Christian faith at a very deep level that I realized it's powerful for explaining the world, Mm -hmm. for explaining how things work, for explaining human beings, for explaining right or wrong, the way we should live. I mean, religion is so much more than just a do's and a don't. Mm-hmm. It's this statement of facts about our creator who created the world with a certain... End in mind? With a certain end in mind, in a way that it should function. And a properly functioning world is good for everybody. Coming to realize that was very helpful in my journey because when you come to faith and think, ah, this is just so much against my natural desires, it prevents me from uh, living how I want to live... No, that, that's completely the wrong way. It's providing you an amazing blueprint and template for how to live if you want to experience peace, joy. For me, when I truly embraced my faith in my early 20s, Christianity explained the world for me. What Christianity told me I should expect to see, I did see. And so perhaps it's a good idea to end with another C.S. Lewis quotation. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's so true. Christianity makes sense of reality. And the only reason to believe it, as Chesterton said, the only reason to believe anything is because it's true. And I'm, I'm struggling right now to how to wrap up this book. Because having or knowing exactly what's coming in book two, three, and four, there's so much I want to say. But because of delayed gratification, we have to be patient. Mm -hmm. But I just, I want to encourage the listeners as we're going through this, that this is scratching the surface. We're 10% there. Book two gets better. Book three is great. Book four is incredible. I mean, it will bring Christianity to an amazing new light for many people. And so just be patient. Delayed gratification. With that, I think we hear the closing bells. As always, the show notes will contain my notes for chapter five. And once again, we have a C.S. Lewis doodle. Please like, share, subscribe, iTunes, Google Play. All all the interwebs. 
All the interwebs. And you can feel free to contact us, restlesspilgrim.net or Twitter at Pints with Jack. We love tweets. And now that we've officially finished book one, it's fair that if you have objections, now's the time to make them. Yep. Bring them on. And until next time, further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.